reinterpretation of cultural artifact can change what role it plays in our memory. And I think we should always, we should always actually be optimistic about that as a multicultural society. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. Uh, my very special guest today is Dr. Michelle Moody Adams. Joseph Strauss, Professor of Political Philosophy and Legal Theory at Columbia University, where she also served as Dean of Columbia College and Vice President for Undergraduate Education. Dr. Moody Adams has published on equality and social justice, moral psychology and virtues, and the philosophical implications of gender and race. And her current work includes articles on academic freedom, equal educational opportunity, and democratic disagreement, amongst other topics. Her next book coming out in late 2021 is entitled Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination and Political Hope. She has been a British Marshall Scholar and an NEH Fellow and is a lifetime honorary fellow of Somerville College in Oxford. I wanna to note too that Dr. Moody Adams will be joining the Kegley Institute of Ethics for a public lecture titled Monuments and the Obligations of Collective Memory uh, that'll be held via Zoom on March 11th at 6 p.m. Pacific, and that is free and open to all. So we hope you'll join us for that event. With that, uh, Dr. Moody Adams, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to The Ethicist Corner. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. So to start, um, you are a professional philosopher, a very accomplished one at that. And I, I wanted to, to ask you just for our listeners who don't know, um, how did you get into philosophy as a career? Kind of what, what drew you to this line of work? I like to joke and say that uh, I didn't choose philosophy, but philosophy chose me. <laughs> there are all these moments in my life where even when I was thinking about doing other things, there was just something about the kinds of arguments and the, even just the approach that philosophers take to the questions that interested me. Um, there are really three quick things I would say. I, I grew up in a Unitarian church, a very um, university sort of neighborhood. Um, a church that was really where the sermons were very intellectual. They would quote philosophers all the time. And I, I didn't actually think much of it, but you know, I was drawn to them. And then we also studied uh, philosophy in high school. I went to a public school, but we were reading all kinds of existentialism, sometimes in a French class, you know, you might be reading it, but actually just had a course on philosophy my senior year. And I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting, but I didn't make much of it. And then in college is the thing that did it. Um, particularly, of course, of all things on Plato. I don't actually write very much on Plato at all in my current life, but it was a course where we read the symposium kind of as the centerpiece of the course. And there was just something about the um, kind of sense of camaraderie in the community that's described in the symposium, um, the sense that you were taken to think about abstract philosophical ideas from doing very ordinary, everyday, earthy things like eating and mm -hmm. drinking. And, and it was just so exciting to think it felt like a natural um, kind of progression, if you will, from the ordinary to the abstract. And I think that was very appealing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Also, you talk about getting exposed to philosophy at the pre-college level, which is there's uh, something I've worked on and several other colleagues work on specifically trying to help teachers introduce philosophy in K through 12 settings. Um, but uh, it, it's also interesting, we've been working with the American Philosophical Association on a project to try and understand people's first exposures to philosophy. And what's interesting is just all the varied paths that takes, but it's, 
Um, I think your story is just another example of how important it is to give people access to philosophy at a young age, right? Because it's such a vital experience for so many of us. Absolutely. Um, As you developed in your career, um, what exemplars, whether other philosophers or educators have been influential for you in developing your own conception of what it means to be a philosopher? What, What constitutes important philosophical practice? Who have been people that have been influential for you in that regard? Yeah, I'll give you two names, even though there are many others that I um, have learned a lot from. One of them was uh, one of my philosophy professors in college, a man named Ifani Minkiti, originally from Nigeria, um, who originally studied journalism, actually, but then decided he wanted to do philosophy, and he studied with John Rawls. Uh, He was Mm. the first person actually introduced me in college to a theory of justice, not long, actually, after it had come out, apparently. Um, and he always said, and I always remember this, philosophy has to bake a little bread. And I think he, so there's this quote from Novalis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of mystic and philosopher, um, who had said philosophy doesn't bake bread, but it's, it gives you God, freedom, and immortality, you know, which do you prefer? <laughs> and he always said, you know, it bakes bread too. And that he, that was his sense that you had to assume it could connect you to the real world. It could produce something that enriched the real world experience, but also that you really could get you, you know, get your teeth into, and it would be rewarding um, and fulfilling. And then the second um, really great influence, in some ways outsized influence, was John Rawls. He was my PhD advisor in graduate school, and I had actually gone to graduate school to study with him. I ended up not writing on a theory of justice, but I still ended up getting so much out of that experience. And there are really two things about him that I still just hope I'm living out in my own practice. One of them is his intellectual generosity. He always told his students, and I think it's now in print in the preface to a couple of his later um, volumes, one of them, the lectures on the history of moral philosophy, and then lectures on the history of political philosophy. The preface to those volumes points out his thought that you should always read another thinker as generously as you can, even if you're going to end mm-hmm. up disagreeing. Mm-hmm. You know, present the best possible version of their view that you can, and if you still disagree, then you do it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But you know, assume that if they have survived over time, their thought is worth taking seriously and mm-hmm. treating respectfully. And I, that's shaped my own practice. It shapes how I teach. It shapes what I, you know, try to encourage my students to think. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't just intellectually generous. He was a really good human being. I mean, I think just a kind, generous, compassionate soul who at many points in my own life kind of would do something that made me realize that I was lu- just lucky to have encountered somebody. Such a, such a, um, you know, Olympian presence in the discipline, who was also just such a good human being. Those two things don't always go together. Right. Yeah, I know that's very true. And I, I love that comment about reading other people and hearing other people charitably. That is such an important point, right? It is. It um, is. So I, I wanted to, to turn a bit to your, your, your current work on democratic disagreement. Um, I mean, a very relevant topic for our time. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of polarization, a lot of disagreement in our society about important issues on several fronts. Right. Um, but when you, when you use, use the term democratic disagreement, um, wh- what do you mean by that? Wh- what is democratic disagreement? 
Well, I don't think of that, Michael, as a technical term necessarily. I, that, I'm, that's just a way of referring to the kind of disagreement that does and can um, show itself in a okay. democracy. I do think there are standards that we can live up to that we're not living up to. And sometimes, mm -hmm. in fact, when I use that phrase in a descriptive way, it actually worries me, the, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that emerge. Um, I worry about them for you know, a few reasons being uh, primarily that I think we lost sight in a lot of contemporary democracies of, of the, I'll call them the kind of civic virtues mm -hmm. that we need to be respectful of and mindful of in order to have the right kind of disagreement. That's constructive, not destructive. Mm -hmm. in, in particular, I think we've lost sight of um, the importance of compromise mm. and the importance really of extending a kind of, I call it civic, grace to other people so that you don't assume the worst of them in a disagreement in an election if you lose out which you might right in a democracy if people are voting and not everybody's going to vote the same your person may not win that you don't approach your loss with a sense of resentment um, and a refusal to recognize that just because somebody else wins doesn't mean they're gonna to wanna to crush you and you shouldn't wanna crush them when you win the next time. But I fear there's a lack of kind of, um, I, as I said, I call it civic grace. It's, it's sort of like forgiveness, but it's more a matter of being willing to think the best of even of the people you disagree with. Um, and mm -hmm. you blend that with a readiness to compromise. I think you can have uh, disagreements that are constructive and productive rather than ones that tear us apart as a community. And so that, that's helpful. And you, you talk in some of your recent work, um, particularly there's an essay, How to Disagree Without Being Disagreeable. Um, and you, you noted in, in that work that, you know, it's, it's common to hear that we're living in a uniquely polarizing time. Um, but that actually polarization has been a pretty common feature of political discourse um, throughout our history. So when you look at kind of polarization and where we are right now as a, as a country, do you think there are elements that are particularly unique or pernicious? Or do you think this is kind of more of the same? And there's, there's like a civic virtues we could, we could resort to in the past to help try and overcome problematic polarization just like now? Or do you think there's specific challenges that require novel solutions at this time. Yeah, it's interesting. There's continuity between disagreement of the sort that we that you could have seen, you know, a decade or even five decades or whatever ago. But there's some new elements in the, in it. Um, one of them is that I think the way in which we look at political campaigns, particularly because it's like there's a permanent campaign. This isn't my my phrase, this comes from Amy Gutman and Dennis Thompson and their work on compromise. But the sense mm -hmm. that when you're always campaigning and you're always trying to get people to give you money to campaign, you can never be ready in your daily political conversation to do that thing I said earlier matter, which is compromise. The ten tendency is to take the most extreme version of your view. You mm -hmm. appeal to quote unquote your base by doing that but then what you put out in public discourse, particularly as a political leader, is the least um, open-minded, open-ended version of your view. And that's, that is new, that the fact that people are always campaigning, always looking for money, and the most extreme version of people's opinions come out. And then there's one other thing that I, I think is critical, and that's that in past 
versions of our culture, we had more opportunity for kind of shared thinking and talking around um, how we understood the news, the events of the day, both the presence of, of newspapers, local and national, that we kind of um, gathered around to talk about the stories in, but also network news. So, you know, when, when John F. Kennedy was shot, people gathered around to hear the stories that came from one source. Mm -hmm. And when they saw him take off his glasses and say, this is serious, they knew this was something as a country we had to take seriously. I even think still around 9-11 for every other thing that was not um, sort of unifying about some aspects of that response. Mm -hmm. The fact that people who lived outside of New York City could say, you know, we, we kind of share in the sorrow of New York when we look at the, at the Twin Towers come down. Mm -hmm. But now, even though I think social media has many good qualities, it does many wonderful things for us, I would not want to see it disappear. It has helped to create fracturing of community and a fracturing of our kind of collective identity. Um, you know, people can create their own content without any kind of independent check. Mm -hmm. And that can be good. That makes it in some ways more democratic potentially, but it also means that putting together all these separate stories, the separate origins and the separate sources, it, that becomes harder. And that's new. You know, the, the kind of campaigning that pushes to the extreme and then nothing in the way of communication and media that really work to bring us back together from these extremes. We, we've got to find some way to get past those two tendencies that you know, fracture the, the, the body politic right. and then nothing is there to you know, sew it up and heal the wounds that are created. Right, and it seems like, I mean, kind of referring back to one of the virtues you were talking about of you know, compassion and compromise, um, it seems like in our current era, um, in many cases, it can be seen as a weakness to compromise, right? You need, you need to take this most extreme view, whereas what's really going to allow you to move forward on a position substantively in a discussion is to be able to compromise and hear the other side, right? Um, so it seems like there's a bit of a, a value conflict there at times in our, in our conversations. Right. And so, I don't think you have to compromise on everything. Sure. Uh, but there should be some things that everyone is ready to consider compromising on. Yeah. We've lost that. Yes. So your talk on March 11th is going to focus on um, an area that, you know, around which there has been kind of substantive disagreement in our, in our nation. And it involves thinking about our history, collective memories, and how we memorialize um, uh, figures and important events in our history, or tragic events in our history. Um, so specifically, you're going to be talking about monuments and collective memory in your talk. So, Maybe to start, can you say a bit about, you know, through your research and your thinking on this topic, why are monuments so important for our society? And, you know, how do you see those as, you know, central ways in which we reveal our collective memory as a, as a culture and as a society? Yeah, monuments are important for all kinds of different reasons. There is this core idea of the monument, not as revealing memory, Michael, but as serving as a focal point for us to try to articulate shared memories. And I, I can come back to that point later. Mm -hmm. But I also think that, you know, sometimes we have something that's very, it causes lots of cultural upheaval. 
maybe it's a war where lots of our fellow citizens die or we bring about the death of others as well. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to have something that um, in, around which we can gather to try to heal in the, in the face of suffering and loss. Sometimes we wanna celebrate something we've done as a culture that's good. And monuments can also do that. That's less a memorial than, than a monument to something that we've done that we think is worth celebrating. Um, and those two things together, that sense of commemorating events that are important or the loss or, or suffering around them and maybe celebrating good things, those two um, values and those two purposes and concerns, those to my mind don't disappear because your country has got 340 million people who don't all agree on things. You can create structures, even public spaces, sometimes even natural environments that can serve again as focal points for memory. Um, and you know, as with any um, individual person, the way in which you remember changes over time. The things I remember about my youth, for instance, now as I've gotten older, are things I would not talk about in exactly the same way I talked about them, you know, when I was 25, say. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a bad thing. We assume that every memory is kind of fixed and given, but memory is something we construct. It's an interpretation of our past. We need sometimes to interpret in, in conversation with others. That's what a memorial properly looked at can do. It can be a focal point for that kind of collective interpretation mm -hmm. and reinterpretation of who we are. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, so, that a memorial doesn't have its own symbolic content. And I wouldn't say that some memorials don't limit how we can interpret and reinterpret the past. I think, unfortunately, I think Confederate monuments have the kind of symbolic content that makes them more likely to limit our options for reinterpretation. But I, you know, if I'll give you one example, I absolutely um, really value the Lincoln Memorial, the one, you know, the beautiful one that's got the giant statue of Lincoln and it's got the Gettysburg Address on the, in, inscribed inside. It was dedicated in 1922, basically as a, um, a kind of acceptance of the, uh, of a society that's, that allowed Jim Crow segregation. They even invited one African-American speaker to come talk and he was prepared to talk about Lincoln's role in emancipation. They told him, no, you can't say that because that's not what this event is about. That's mm -hmm. 1922. Mm -hmm. In 1939, 17 years later, when Marian Anderson had been denied the right to sing in Constitution Hall by the Daughters of the American Revolution. 75,000 people gather on the grounds of the Lincoln Memorial to basically, I, I like to say, rededicate that memorial so that it became for really the rest of the century. And in, I think into the 21st century, one of the most important sites of kind of civil rights in, the, in all of American history yeah. from 1922 to 1939. So our reinterpretation of an, an artifact, a cultural artifact like a memorial can change what role it plays in our memory. And I think we should always, we should always actually be optimistic about that as a multicultural society. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, something there you talk about reinterpreting memories and the way that they can grow. We can, we can have, our memories can be shaped in different ways in different times of our lives, right? 
Um, but I'm thinking about you know how we should approach memories related to memorials and monuments that you mentioned Confederate figures, for example. So I'm thinking, you know, when I lived, I, I did my graduate work in Memphis and there was a monument to Jefferson Davis and there's a monument to Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, right? One of the founders of the KKK and a former Confederate right. officer. Um, the Nathaniel Bedford Forrest monument has since been removed. Um, the Jefferson Davis one in Memphis, I believe has been removed too. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but there's other examples too. I mean, Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, monuments being removed in Virginia and Minnesota and other places. There's, there's lots of examples of this. Um, I mean, what do you think about arguments about kind of conflicting memories as related to these monuments, right? So I think there are, I think, very, um, seems to be valid claims of the fact that memories tied to these monuments are tied to historical trauma, oppression, racism, histories of slavery, um, and therefore having them memorialized in a public space is in effect, um, you know, tacitly, you know, think is acting as if those are not problematic instances in our nation's history, or that these figures are, should be celebrated, right, for some of these actions. Others say, well, no, they're, they're um, uh, memorializing an important part of our, our, our culture in the American South or our nation's history. There's conflicting, conflicting accounts of what the, what the memories are in those cases. Um, what do, I mean, how do you think about adjudicating those conflicting memories? Is there just a certain point where you say, we can, we can make claims about different memories, but nonetheless, these statues need to be removed? Or do you think about approaching that in a different way? Michael, you ask me a lot of questions all at once. I'll, I'll try and take, you know, unpack it. I mean, I do believe, as I kind of hinted at earlier, that there are some cultural artifacts, including statues, you know, buildings, flags, that are so bound up with a particular kind of narrative that is um, destructive, that is stigmatizing of some people, that's about uh, inequality and hatred and violence. I think there were monuments in Nazi Germany like that, which is why at the end of the war, some of those were just destroyed or in uh, uh, you know, formerly communist societies. Mm -hmm. Some of those monuments were not necessarily destroyed, but they were removed from a place of public honor and put somewhere else. So those are two options you can have. Right. But I find it very hard where people, if you ask them, do they understand the history that shaped the creation of memorials X, Y, and Z that are Confederate. There are two different periods in American history where they appeared in large numbers. One of them is, was around the time of Jim Crow. 50 and 60 years after the Civil War, they were not built to commemorate honor of the Civil War. They were built to celebrate white, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And then again, around the time of the Civil Rights Movement, particularly the 50s, where people were afraid that the South was gonna change in ways that would again challenge white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And so if you could give me a story about these monuments that completely detached them from that narrative of white supremacy in a couple of different historical moments, I would say, oh sure, there's a debate about it. Whereas, you know, in the case of the Lincoln Memorial, there is obviously debate about it. There were people at the time who disagreed about what Lincoln's heritage should be but the memorials you've described, there is, and, and we're, we're reminded of it whenever there's certain kinds of demonstrations, they become a focal point, frankly, for people to gather around it when they wanna protest 
what they think is a disruption of their way of life right. rather than and so you if your practice tells me that's the narrative they're embedded in and history tells me that's the narrative they're embedded in it's very difficult for me to say that you can just have the old phrase plausible deniability it's implausible right. um, it's plausible in the case of a lincoln memorial it's plausible you know the case of the vietnam veterans memorial is another one Many people argue that it's a memorial that should have done two things. It should have maybe said more about the moral dimensions of the war, some people say, or it should have acknowledged that not the only, the only people who died were not American soldiers. And those are two very good arguments, but it did do other things that allowed for a moment of reconciliation and of debate and discussion for at least people not to be at each other's throats in, mm -hmm. in at that point in the early 80s about the war. So there, it, its meaning historically is complex, that memorial. Mm -hmm. But the complexity that you would see in many other types of memorials, it's not there. And I'll acknowledge, so I, I've sometimes had trouble with this one. I'll give you an example. It's not an American example and it wasn't built as a monument. But in South Africa, they've been able to turn the prison that Nelson Mandela was held in. In fact, the whole island, Robben Island, that mm -hmm. the prison. It's now a, a, a kind of national monument. You know, the whole island is a place that celebrates, they, they call it the triumph of the human spirit over adversity. I have to say, I don't know how you can take such an artifact and reshape it in that way, but it's partly because everybody on South South Africa, sorry, came to agree that it could have that kind of power if they all decided to reshape it and rethink how it was treated. But I don't see how you do that with Confederate monuments. I don't want to see them destroyed. I think we should do a, a, a range of things that involve saving them either in museums with as parts of exhibits or in a, maybe in a public park where we, you know, we remind people that they do this um, in parts of Eastern Europe, where they will remove monuments to the communist era. They don't destroy them. They want them there, but they don't want them in the place everybody walks by all the time as a place of honor. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't want to deny that it, these things happened, but I want to say, I don't see how you take them out of that narrative and suddenly recast them as meaning something totally different. Right, that makes sense. And it, when, when you talk about the possibility of not destroying some of these monuments and having them in a park or a museum, is that because you think that there's this important notion that we need to remember our past so as not to repeat it? And that, that you know, if we destroy them, although symbolically that might be an important action, we're also possibly down many years ahead gonna, gonna forget um, the legacy that, that it's important to remember? Yeah, that's my concern. And you know, it's you walk a very fine line because sometimes the worry is that if you don't, if there's anything about the memory of that particular element of the past that physically exists, it could be reinterpreted at some very distant time in a way that denies the kind of intervening history of pain that it caused. But I actually think if you properly label and properly frame it. So they've done this a lot in, um, so I've talked about the post-communist era, even with some Nazi memorabilia, 
in Munich, for instance, and I think there's some other cities in Germany where they've done this, they may actually erect a museum that tries to tell the story of how, um, you know, the Nazi movement originated, what it did, who it affected, you know, how it was um, finally vanquished, etc. Um, you do walk a fine line. I've, I actually got to know um, an architect who'd worked on a couple of monuments in the Berlin area who actually refused to be part of that, the, the Munich Museum to the, the Nazi, to, to remember the Nazi movement. He said he didn't know how to walk that line between just remembering and celebrating or commemorating. Um, but you know, I think it can be done, but it is a very fine line to walk. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Moody Adams, I know as an educator and, and somebody who gives um, many lectures, engages with you know, academic and public populations quite a bit, I'm sure you, you've probably heard this claim that comes up quite a bit about, we're talking about some of these historical figures who are the subject of monuments and memorials. Well, we have to judge people by the context of their time, right, that kind of claim. And that phrase is often tied implicitly, sometimes explicitly, to what we call moral relativism, um, which is something I know you've written on quite a bit. And basically that idea is used to kind of counter in some ways moral judgment of historical figures for atrocities and, and moral, um, yeah, moral, moral crimes basically. And on your view, kind of how, do you, how do you assess that, that claim? When somebody says, well, we must judge people by the context of their time and the guys that we ought not morally judge people in the past because their standards were different than ours. Um, how do you usually respond to that kind of challenge um, when, when people raise that to you? Yeah, here's what I, I like to think. Sometimes what we're doing, maybe most of the time, is we're actually understanding what, will, what it will be like when people look back at us. We will, mm -hmm. we know, have something about our practice that others in the future will see as probably in some way flawed. It might be around how we treat animals. It might be around how we treat the environment. You know, that you can just imagine, or even how, you know, people who are citizens of a, one democracy treat citizens of another. And I think we imagine that we would want people to understand that many of us are doing the best we can with limited time, et cetera. On the other hand, I do believe that unlike the knowledge you need to carry out your life in a way that's scientifically rational, like you need to know, you know, you, people don't know how diseases are spread, you can forgive them for the fact that they did things like they didn't wash their hands when they went to visit somebody else and that person got sick. I don't think that the knowledge we need to be moral people is like that. It's not like it, to my, in my view, it doesn't actually change over time. The concepts to my mind are, there's a few core moral concepts. The problem of course is they are so rich. There's a phrase that some philosophers use, they're semantically deep. By that, I mean that the meaning of them is so deep and rich that maybe no single person or single culture or even you know single society could get all the, the depth of the meaning of a moral concept out. And that's why I, I think that first of all, we're able to talk about people in the past as having something to teach us that's good. We can do that because I think we recognize there is moral commonality. On mm -hmm. the other hand, we recognize that like our own era, they may make mistakes. 
they may get something wrong. It may not because they're bad. And we want to be forgiven in our own practice. So we forgive them. But you can forgive and still acknowledge that people could have done differently and could have done better. I'll give you an example. Yeah. If I can learn from Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, which I think is one of the great documents of all humankind, truly, I mean, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating or being hyperbolic, but he owned slaves. And he talked in the notes on the state of Virginia, for instance, very disparagingly about African descended people. It's very hard to read, frankly, but I would not want to say that because um, people had slaves, lots of people had them, we have to say, oh, Jefferson has to be forgiven for that. No, I can celebrate what's morally powerful about the Declaration of Independence, and I'm grateful for it. At the same time saying, if I can take the morally good out of the past, I have to acknowledge the moral bad. But I don't want to do away with saving the documents that he produced. I think that's the danger. So the third part of this is a lot of people assume if you look back at the past and you're critical and you see, oh, they had feet of clay, oh, we'll just dismiss them. I actually don't think that. I wouldn't want to be dismissed, you know, 60 years from now if people said, oh, look at what Moody Adams did and she should have known better. So I think it's, it's that sense that we don't want to be judged harshly in our own case. But if people can speak to the past in a way that they, and learn from the past, we can learn from the Declaration of Independence. We can also hold him responsible for the places where he morally failed. We can say, here's where you morally excelled, but here's where you failed. And yet, despite your failure, we recognize the good things you did and we'll, we'll salvage those as part of the history we want to keep going forward. Thank you. That's very. It's a very helpful response. Um, I, I remember that for the next time I discuss that in my undergraduate <laughs> classes, which comes up every time. I, every time we talk about ethics, pretty much. Oh yeah, <laughs> Dr. Moody Adams. We have a tradition in the podcast called the the lightning rounds, which is just five short short answer questions um, to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So I'll just jump into these. The first question is, uh, what was the last book you read, and would you recommend it to others? I read so much all the time every day. Can I tell you the last book I read that I would recommend? It's actually yes. by a man named David Gallinson. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses. Um, okay. I, I, it was good for me because partly as I've gotten older, I've realized maybe I didn't do all the things in my you know, academic professional life I wanted to. Is there still time? And he's saying, yeah, if you're one of these people who's kind of working out a single idea over, over life, um, you might still have time no matter how old you are to get it right. And that's what I'm hoping I'll do. So that's the one I've read just last week that was probably um, of the moment, the one I'd most recommend. Thanks for your that recommendation. Um, and I, I actually wanna, I wanna ask a follow-up on that. I mean, you're, you're somebody who's accomplished so much in your career and um, have been impactful on so many people, not just in philosophy, but you know, in the world and throughout academia more generally. And are there things you think in your career going forward? You know, like uh, are there aspirations you have in mind um, that you want to accomplish, and then you know, kind of going forward in the rest of your career? Because for somebody, you know, for many of us, we look at someone like you and think, well, she's accomplished so much. So are th are there goals you still keep in mind that keep you motivated on a daily basis? 
First of all, I want to thank you for the compliment. It's it's humbling. I'll just say that when you still, you know, you feel like there's so many wonderful people who write and think in the world. If you can just have a little piece of contributing to somebody's life, it's a good thing. I suppose, yeah, some of it will be through, I hope, my writing. Um, mm -hmm. And I this book that I'm working on about social movements and how they help to make space for justice. If I can encourage through that book, uh, people who think through their activism in some way, shape or form, they might make a difference in the world. I would feel like I'd done something good. I, I'm hoping when that book comes out, it might, it might appeal to an academic audience, but also to an audience very much outside of it. I also really value my teaching. And I'm hoping, you know, as long as I can keep going in classes big and small, that I can continue to influence people in a good way. When I mentioned my um, dissertation advisor, John Rawls, I didn't tell you how much I really wish that things he did for me, that in some moments where I wasn't sure I was doing the right thing in my life, and he would say, no, go ahead, go ahead, do this, do that, and offered assistance. I hope I can do that, not just, maybe not just as a teacher with uh, regard to my students, but um, in ways that would, you know, that phrase, pay it forward, mm -hmm. the yeah. support and the, and the um, encouragement that I got from my teachers. I hope I can do that for my students as well. And then I hope I can just, um, you know, maybe bring some joy into people's lives in my family and, and in the world at large. Laudable goals. And, and <laughs> I hope. I hope. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Moody Adams, if, if you could have dinner with any two people, past or present, um, who would it be? That's a hard one. That's a hard one. And your answers could be different tomorrow. So it's just what's Yeah, well, I'll give you the one today. Yeah. It would be str two strong women who've made their mark in the entertainment creative domain. One would be Barbara Streisand. Um, and the other would be Regina King. And you wanna know why? Both of them are people who create in their own uh, way, they act and, and in Barbara Streisand's case, she also sings, but they've directed movies. And I think through all these things, they've shown that they can take the creative energy they have in their own individual lives and they can help other people bring out the most creative aspects of their character. I, I'm just the world's biggest Barbara Streisand fan, but right now I saw the movie One Night in Miami, and it's a quiet film by Regina King. It's a you know it's kind of soft and it, but it's it has just stayed with me and it has reminded me of the reasons for which all the figures who are depicted in that movie, Malcolm X, um, Muhammad Ali, actually starts out as Cassius Clay in the film, Sam Cooke, and then uh, Jim Brown, the football player. How complicated things they accomplished in the world that we not all of us know all the time about. But these two strong women directors, I would love to just sit down with them. They're different generations um, and different American experiences. It would just be really, really nice to be able to do that. That sounds like a fascinating dinner for sure. <laughs> so what is a, a hobby or a pastime you like to engage in outside of work? Lately, a lot of it's been around cooking. You know, we've been home more during the pandemic and initially the shopping was hard. I'll say back in March of 20, March and April of 2020. But when the shopping got a little bit easier, you know, you didn't have to stand in quite the long line. There was something nice about thinking that you could make 
both your own, here I go back to creativity. You create something that helps to make people happy or bring some comfort and then the process of creating. So I was going through my favorite old cookbooks and making things and I was looking online at people like Ina Garten, you know, she's the one that made the giant cosmopolitan online in the glass that was bigger than she was. But just, you know, creating something that brings other people joy, but also you get joy from while you do it. Cooking is a really fun thing in that way. So final question. Um, if you had a magic wand and could make one change tomorrow in our community, what would it be? And this could be the global community. It could be Columbia. It could be however you want to interpret community. That's a very big question. I would <laughs> go for the thing that is in some ways the most urgent crisis. And for me, it would be around the pandemic. I would, anybody who wanted the vaccine, I would make sure they had it. And anybody who didn't want it, if there are treatments that are available and they're suggesting there's some new medications that might be useful even without the vaccine, I'd make sure that it was available for them. I would encourage them to contemplate the vaccine, but I just think the energy of you know, human life, in, not just in cities, but, but maybe especially in cities, I miss that. And I'm, I would not want people to be subjecting themselves to illness to bring that energy back, but I miss it. I miss going to the movies. I miss going to theater. I'm an opera person, so I miss that in, in New York. And I just miss being out in the world and bumping shoulders with people and not feeling like, uh-oh, I'm going to get sick. So it would be around the pandemic. Agreed. Yeah, I miss all those things too. And good answer. Definitely pressing for sure. Um, so Dr. Moody Adams, I, I want to thank you so much again for spending some time with us this afternoon and very much looking forward to your March 11th talk. And um, thanks for joining the Kegel Institute. We really, really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll look forward to March 11th. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio.